Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This week, the Idaho legislature came back to Boise to consider elections and liability issues. All it took was a broken door, multiple arrests, and three wild days for lawmakers to reach an agreement. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week I sit down with Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News and Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press to discuss this week's special session and what we can expect from lawmakers come January. But first, what a week it was. On Monday, the legislature gaveled in to consider COVID-19 related elections and liability issues. Before the legislature was even able to begin, however, Capitol Police had issues trying to enforce social distancing in the fourth floor gallery overlooking the house. The citizens who showed up to the Capitol took exception to those efforts and dozens tried to force their way into the gallery, leading to a confrontation and a broken glass door. That initial protest resulted in no arrests. During the House Judiciary Rules and Administration Committee just over an hour later, the large number of people who came to testify forced the committee to meet in the State House's Lincoln Auditorium. But not everyone on the committee felt the environment was safe. I will ask for your decorum. Mr. Chair. Go ahead. This is the problem. We're here to do the business of the state. I'm here to represent my constituents, but I won't do it in an unsafe manner. And I think that's appropriate. So until we can come to a compromise and at least do social distancing in here and recognize what the ventilation system's doing, I'm leaving. Recognized. Mr. <clears throat> Chair, if I'd just like to say something one more time, I think it's really appalling. I have been a civil and kind leader in this state. I have never, ever, lambasted any of you, and this is essential that we remain civil. The next day, protesters disrupted the House Judiciary Committee once again when Chairman Cheney asked some members of the audience to leave a table reserved for the press. That disruption resulted in one arrest. While most cleared out of the room, some refused to leave, and police arrested Ammon Bundy a few hours later, charging him with trespassing. Bundy was arrested once again at the State House on Wednesday morning. But despite the distractions, lawmakers were still able to get work done passing legislation that would require an option for in-person voting for all future elections, loosen dates for absentee vote counting, and limit COVID-related liability for certain businesses and entities. We'll have more coming up with Betsy and Kevin. Each body also passed resolutions giving us a peek at what the legislature will almost certainly take up in January's regular session. On Tuesday, the House took up House Concurrent Resolution 1 to remove Governor Brad Little's state of emergency order. 
On Wednesday, the Senate introduced its own resolution, telling the governor that the Senate believes it's time to end the emergency order as long as it doesn't impact the funding and regulatory changes he made. The resolution also included a to-do list for the legislature come January. And we're putting everyone on notice of what we plan to do and how we plan to do it and say stay tuned because the Senate is active and going and we want to do what's best for the state of Idaho and the people who live here. Here to talk about the special session is Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News and Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press. Betsy, let's start with you. You were there at the State House all week and you saw the protests as they unfolded starting Monday morning. What did you see? I have never seen anything like that at the state capitol. In all my years of covering the Idaho legislature, I've seen many protests, nothing like this. I was on the floor of the House, and a very large crowd was screaming. Um, the noise on the House floor was so loud you could not hear yourself speak, and they were pounding on the glass that led to the interior gallery, and the walls were shaking. Um, it seemed like they were all gonna come down. Those, that was not the glass that actually broke. Um, from down where I was, it sounded like I, the, the noise was really amplified, but that had something to do with the, the way it was reverberating through the fourth floor of the Capitol. And right about that time, glass shattered on the fourth floor. I didn't hear it, but I saw something on Twitter and I thought, what the heck? And so I went running out of the house chamber and up the stairs to the upper hallway that leads to the gallery to see what was going on. And what I saw there was a mass of sweating, very angry people shoulder to shoulder, pushing their way against a whole lot of police officers at the doorway that led to the gallery. And I knew I couldn't get into that. <laughs> I couldn't go in there. I climbed up on a little bench and took a picture with my phone over my head, but it really didn't show much. So I went back down and um, watched the rest from the house floor. It was absolutely remarkable. And perhaps the most remarkable thing about all of it was that then the protesters um, basically negotiated with House Speaker Scott Begke, and he agreed to suspend all social distancing rules for the House's fourth floor gallery and let them fill up all the seats. Um, and the gallery had been sectioned off. A portion of it had been reserved for members of the House who wanted to sit up there rather than on the floor for social distancing reasons. That was removed. And so that's why there were some um, House members on the floor at their desks without plexiglass screens who had anticipated that they were going to be elsewhere and coming back in to vote. Um, it was it was really something. Um, and so then the uh, protesters did keep their word in that after they'd filed in and packed the gallery, filled every seat, they were mostly quiet um, as the House conducted its brief session. But basically, it was mayhem uh, the rest of the day. We saw disruptions in committee hearings. We saw disruptions outside committee hearings. We saw hearings having to be suspended and moved to other rooms. Um, lots of screaming and chanting and shouting, lots and lots of guns, long guns, um, pistols and holsters on hips and thighs. Uh, there was one disruption which I did not see personally outside a Senate committee hearing in which a woman began screaming obscenities and had to be restrained. And a senator who saw that told me that she had a gun on her hip 
and everyone was afraid she was going to start shooting and she was clearly not in her right mind. Um, there was just a whole lot of mayhem <laughs> during this special legislative session and the reaction that the legislature took to it was really striking because on the first day on Monday, basically there was no reaction. Um, these um, protesters and, and really as they were, were allowed free reign to do basically almost anything they wanted, especially if they would just shut up. Um, and it was, it was not anything I've seen before as far as how protests are handled at the Capitol. Um, and then things changed on Tuesday and Wednesday. And the legislature changed its tactics and kind of swung to the other extreme to where no violation of the rules was being accommodated. A huge police presence came in. There were multiple arrests. And they clamped down enough that they were finally able to bring order and hold their committee hearings and pass their bills. The tactics that we saw, especially on Monday, line up with what we've seen uh, with protests at local public health district meetings. And I'm thinking the same players and the same grievances with uh, people who are upset at restrictions that are put in place uh, to combat COVID-19, but also the idea of social distancing at these public meetings in the first place. That's true. In fact, it was quite similar to what we saw at the Southwest Health District when um, some of the same players, including Ammon Bundy, physically shoved their way into the building. Um, people chanted and shouted against social distancing rules. Um, and once again there, there were no repercussions, no arrests, um, no consequences for that kind of behavior. And that's what we saw on Monday. And then that changed Tuesday and Wednesday. And let's compare that to uh, protests that we've seen in recent decades at the State House that were much more peaceful, arguably. They didn't have shoving, especially of security guards or ISP, uh, but did result in arrests. And I'm thinking, add the words, and also protests in the 90s regarding farm worker pay. Absolutely. I've seen tons of protests at the state capitol. It's part of what goes on there. People come down and, and have their say um, and express themselves about the issues they're concerned about. I have seen protests with thousands and thousands of people out on the capitol steps and never any disruptions like this. Um, there were uh, hundreds of arrests during multiple years of Add the Words protests in which peaceful protesters came into the capitol and stood silently um, in some cases, blocking entrances to the House or Ch Senate chambers or committee rooms and refusing to leave, often with their hands over their mouths, completely silent, um, very peaceful, intending to be arrested um, in an act of civil disobedience. And they were all arrested. Hundreds of people were arrested. They were loaded onto buses and taken to jail. They uh, uh, weren't released until they'd posted bonds, sometimes many hours later. They all went to court. Many did months of community service. It was taken very, very seriously. Um, and then um, some of us hark back to 1996, when there was a protest in the Idaho Senate in which some BSU students came down to protest in favor of workers' comp for farm workers. And this was a bill that then Governor Batt was pushing, and the Senate had was actually very much in favor of this bill. And the students' timing was a bit off. The Senate was going through some solemn proceedings that day, and that bill eventually was approved by the Senate on a 30 to 5 vote. But the students came in and 
all of a sudden dumped a bunch of confetti off of the Senate gallery um, down onto the head of Senate President Pro Tem Robert Geddes, who was standing below. And then one young bearded protester came in and sat cross-legged on the floor in the well of the Senate um, and refused to leave until he was carried out by the police. And then Senate Majority Leader Jim Risch became extremely outraged. He went up to, to the gallery and took charge along with a um, Capitol security guard by the name of Charlie, who was close to seven feet tall. And there was a rumor around the state house that Senator Risch had made a citizen's arrest himself. But he told me years later that that was just a myth. He didn't do it himself. I believe he just ordered the state police to make the arrests. So, you know, that that was Monday at the State House where we didn't see any sort of repercussions for the protesters. And in fact, they got their way um, at, in as the legislature was attempting to de-escalate the situation. But as you mentioned, Betsy, that was there was a market change on Tuesday and Wednesday where there was an increased police presence. Kevin, you stopped by the State House for a short little bit and saw that increased police presence. Can you talk about what you saw? I have never seen as many police cars outside of the state house as we saw Tuesday afternoon. Uh, between Idaho State Police and Boise uh, Police Department, uh, they had closed off uh, Capitol Boulevard leading to the state house, Jefferson Street, uh, just south of the main entrance to the state house. It was marked uh, police presence. And like I said, I've never seen that many cars, police cars outside the state house because I don't think you could physically have parked another police car outside the state house. It was basically bumper to bumper. And yes, you could see that the, you know, the police presence was very different. The approach was very different. And both of you have mentioned the number of armed protesters. Um, but to be clear, guns are allowed at the state house. Open carry is allowed at the state house. And this is something that we see during the regular session of the legislature every single year, Betsy. That's true. It's, it's become not uncommon at all to see um, protesters open carrying guns at the state house, even in the House and Senate galleries, at protests, sometimes long guns. But typically, it's been when there were protests about gun legislation. And gun rights activists have come out in large numbers to make a point by carrying their firearms to say, we have a right to do this, and we don't want this right to be infringed. In this case, the firearms themselves had no particular relevance to the legislation that was being um, considered by the special session, which was about civil liability and election laws. Um, it just kind of added to the whole atmosphere. Yeah, and let's talk about that civil liability legislation first. This was different, Betsy, than what we first saw proposed uh, before the special session even started. What were the main differences? Right. So there was a working group consisting of the House and Senate Judiciary Committees that held multiple meetings on this, and they endorsed a bill, and then they came back and approved multiple amendments to it. And the concept they came up with was to grant protection from lawsuits over COVID-19 to businesses and schools in Idaho and colleges and universities if those businesses, schools, and colleges and universities made a good faith effort to act responsibly, to follow the laws and regulations with regard to the virus. That was what set off many of these protesters who showed up in opposition to the bill because they expressed fears that 
if in order to get immunity from liability, businesses and schools would have to enforce things like mask orders, why then there would be more enforcement of them and, and that would be terrible because they felt that it was a right to defy those. Um, and in the end, the, the legislature introduced five different bills, six were proposed, and the one that they ended up passing did not include that good faith language, which the legislature had worked pretty hard on. And it was a difference from how some other states had approached this, such as Utah, in basically just granting blanket immunity for any lawsuits having to do with COVID-19. So the bill that passed the Idaho legislature and that the governor has now signed into law says that until July 1st, um, any business or nursing home or hospital or long-term care facility or school in Idaho um, cannot be sued over the transmission or exposure to COVID-19 period unless there was willful or reckless intent. Um, and so that means no negligence lawsuits. And there was major opposition to this from the Idaho AARP who said, particularly with regard to long-term care facilities in Idaho right now, that's where the majority of the deaths from COVID-19 are occurring. And this is a time when state and federal inspections have been dialed way back because of the pandemic. And in many cases, family members have not been able to visit their loved ones in those homes. And that this is not a time to take away the possibility for redress if there are really terrible practices in some of those places. But that is, in fact, what this bill did. Especially as the state in rural areas is facing shortages of workers in those same facilities. And Kevin, as the school year is starting across the state, what are the implications for schools and universities in this legislation? I think the implications, it depends on who you ask, because this bill divided education groups. The school boards wanted it, the school administrators wanted it, they felt like they needed the protection from a potential lawsuit. The Idaho Education Association opposed it. Now, how much of a practical impact is this going to have on school reopening or schools remaining open? I think that's an open question because as we're seeing this unfold across the state, you still have school districts facing some very serious challenges in terms of opening or staying open simply because of the case numbers in their community. You have West Ada is has delayed its opening and will, you know. Boise has gone to an online-only approach. Nampa has gone to an online-only approach. And it's not just the big districts in the big metro areas. We saw it this week in, in Mackey. Mackey, one of the smallest school districts in the state, had to pivot immediately to online learning after, the, uh, after an outbreak in that community. So now, the civil liability issue may address some of the concerns, and it may give school administrators some sense of protection from a lawsuit, but by no means does this reopen schools at the K-12 level. It doesn't reopen schools at the higher education level, because right now, the, the colleges and universities, which just opened this week for the most part, are still having to watch case numbers. And you know, I, I think the case numbers in the next couple of weeks on campus, that's really going to tell the tale about whether the colleges and universities can remain open and continue to do a blend of online and face-to-face -face learning. I think that's going to be much more significant than this uh, civil liability law. I'm also curious with the lag time between getting infected and showing symptoms and the lag time between getting tested and getting those results and those results getting 
reported to the state, how long it's going to be before we figure out if this grand experiment is working in the first place. Uh, See, the, the elections bills that passed and the one that didn't were a little bit more straightforward than the civil liability issue. Can you give us a brief rundown of the two bills that did pass? Sure. Um, so one of the bills that passed was requested by county clerks to ease the handling of the November election in which, in which they're anticipating a huge surge of ab absentee ballots. So it basically adjusts a couple of deadlines. And that was one of the bills that the governor attached to his call for the special session. It passed easily. The other one that the county clerks requested for the same reason, to ease the November election because of the shortage of poll workers and the, the difficulty in finding polling locations that could accommodate social distancing, allowing them to set up voting centers at county option where voters from any precinct could cast their ballot. And this would also have been pretty big convenience to voters. That was killed. It passed the Senate, but it was killed in a House committee. And instead, a different bill came out of the House guaranteeing the right to in-person voting in any Idaho election, regardless of disaster or emergency. So what that bill effectively does, that's House Bill 1, and that's the only one that as of our taping time, the governor has not yet acted on, is, is forbid what happened in our May primary this year, which was an all mail-in election. It was proposed by uh, Representative Priscilla Giddings of Whitebird. And unlike the, all the other legislation that was considered during the special session, this would be a permanent change to Idaho law, not a temporary change. The other bills all expire um, within the next year. Uh, so there are some concerns about this. During the Senate committee hearing, um, senators asked Representative Giddings, well, what happens? It, you have to guarantee at least one in-person polling place in the county, but what happens if the whole county is flooded? or say, you know, in flames. And she said, oh, then you just delay the election. And the problem, as pointed out by Senator Jim Rice, is that under the Idaho Constitution, you cannot delay an election in Idaho for many really important reasons. We can all think about elected officials perhaps delaying, declaring an emergency and, de and taking office for life. That's not allowed for in Idaho. Um, she also suggested that perhaps you'd move the election to another county, but there are issues with that as well. Nevertheless, Senator Rice voted for that bill and it passed both houses. Kevin, I want to get your thoughts on this to-do list that we saw from the Senate in the proposal, or sorry, the resolution that was passed late on Wednesday. Um, they made it pretty clear that they have a lot of things on the agenda that they are going to discuss in direct response to the emergency declaration and the actions that Governor Brad Little took. You know, I think the long-term story coming out of the special session, as, as alarming as the protests were, as unsettling as this, uh, as the arrests and the demonstrations were. I think what's most, you know, what may have the longest term implication is this uh, to-do list, as you put it, from the Senate and this tension between the executive branch and the legislative branch as it relates to the pandemic and what's unfolded over the past five months. I mean, the Senate resolution says a lot and it says that the Senate hopes to address a whole bunch of issues stemming from the pandemic, whether it's a constitutional amendment that will, would allow the legislature to convene its own special sessions, as opposed to waiting on the governor, limitations on how um, the, the governor's spending authority during an emergency, limitations on the duration of an emergency declaration, limitations on the role of public health districts in, in terms of uh, ordering the closure of schools or, or ordering public health orders. 
And it says that the state is going to get rid of the existing coronavirus emergency declaration with, with no qualifications, no matter what is happening in January, whether we're in a second wave of the coronavirus, whether uh, the coronavirus outbreak is exacerbated by flu outbreaks, regardless of where we are, this resolution spells out a plan to remove the emergency declaration. And more tellingly, perhaps, is that as he presented the resolution on the floor, Senate President Pro Tem Brent Hill said, we've spoken with Governor Little about this, and he is on board. So there's a commitment here, come what may, in January, we're going to remove the emergency designation, and we're going to take on a lot of issues pertaining to this coronavirus pandemic, issues that have you know, come out in, in the five months uh, since the, the outbreak and since the emergency declaration. You, you do everything that's on the Senate's list and you set a budget, that's pretty much a full legislative session. I mean, it's pretty uh, far-reaching and ambitious and it, it gives you a sense of what a, a hectic legislative session is awaiting in January. It's also notable that if Idaho were to just end its emergency declaration right now, it would lose tens of millions of dollars in FEMA funds immediately, including the very funds that the state has tapped to fund an additional $300 a week in unemployment benefits. We wouldn't qualify for those if we weren't under a state of emergency. And there was the Senate debate brought out some interesting points about how the House's desire to immediately end the state of emergency seemed to be aimed at some things that, that, that any of that would not accomplish because it would not cut off local mandates for masks or for social distancing or limits on gatherings. Those are all coming from cities, counties, health districts, not from the state at this point. So, and the other thing is that if we end the state of emergency, the governor can always issue a new one if conditions change. And let's, oh, go ahead, Kevin, please. And I think if you kind of scrape past the, the resolutions and this tension between the executive and legislative branches over powers, it didn't take long for you to hear legislators saying in many cases that they feel like the coronavirus pandemic has passed or it wasn't as much of a crisis as we thought it was in the first place. You had uh, Stephen Harris, the architect of, of the House version of the resolution to get rid of the designation, the declaration, saying we know a lot more about the pandemic than we did five months ago. It was scary at first, but we know more. Well, what we know now is that there are 2,500 cases in his hometown of Meridian. Barbara Ehart from Idaho Falls uh, during the debate this week said, uh, the numbers are dropping, it's going away. Well, no, it's actually, the numbers are increasing very rapidly in her hometown of Idaho Falls and her home county of Bonneville County to the point where on Wednesday, her hometown paper, the Post Register reported that Bonneville County is still a hotspot, according to the White House's definition of coronavirus hotspots. I mean, you, you had this legislature, uh, legislators really trying to wish away the pandemic in, in defiance, not just of the governor's declaration, but in defiance of the numbers, in defiance of the science. It was very stark and, and very telling. And I think in some ways, the fears and the frustrations and the anger that you saw from the demonstrators the legislators who were trying to wish this pandemic away were, were kind of, you know, in some ways almost pandering to that. There was also- Do they wish it away or do they really believe that it isn't a problem? Well, 
wish away or believe that it's been overblown in the first place. I mean, you're right. It's it's a, probably a combination of both. Representative Harris um, really stressed that the concern was for hospital capacity and that we haven't exceeded that, so everything's fine. The Idaho Press had a front page story today about hospital capacity in Idaho, and we have had hospitals in the Treasure Valley and elsewhere in Idaho at or exceeding their capacity in July. And this raises really big concerns about what's going to happen in the fall when the flu season comes in, in addition to the coronavirus pandemic, which although the numbers statewide have been a little bit on the decline from where they were, they're much higher than they were in the spring. And, and there are a lot of concerns still about healthcare capacity in Idaho. All right. So Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press and Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for watching. Be sure to follow Idaho Reports on Facebook and Twitter for updated analysis and numbers throughout the week. And be sure to subscribe to the Idaho Reports podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.